So the word of the Lord comes to us this morning from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Well, that was a very um, kind welcome. And if you can't understand, just wave and we'll do it in French. <laughs> Talking of thought leaders, um, it's my tradition to pray before we look at God's word together. So can we just do that as we sit? Lord, we thank you for this huge privilege we have of your wisdom and of your word before us now. And I do pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will enlighten our minds and Bring them into alignment with your very own, so that we may understand our times and be Christ-like in our response, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you very much for your welcome. I was um, last here in 1998, we tried to work out, and I'm afraid, quite typically, I was here bird-watching with uh, John Stott, who was undercover, as it were, at the time knowing that there were a few churches in Bend and having a few days off. In fact, I was remembering that we were in Gibraltar on one occasion uh, looking at the migration of birds of prey across the straits to Morocco. And again, he was just having a quick break between a, a busy schedule uh, because this man was a man who'd written 50 books and was greatly admired all over the world for the kind of um, penetration of his Christian teaching and we went to a very early service in the cathedral in Gibraltar. And as we walked out, the minister said, I think I recognize you, don't I? And John said, we're just birders on holiday. And kept walking. <laughs> and that was that. And it was a little bit like that when we came to Bend. We were just birders on holiday. So it's nice to come back now. And uh, a lot has changed, I must say. And I want to talk about Bend in a, in a little while, uh, following up from what... Ken just said about church hopping and the consumer society, but we'll talk about that in a minute. 
you have a great privilege as a church, and this makes my job easier because I'm not actually going to talk about a rocha this morning at all. A rocha means the rock in Portuguese. We went there actually 30 years ago um, to start a bird observatory and a field study center to find out what the gospel meant if you applied it to the broken relationship between people and creation in real practice. So I've banded 100,000 birds. We've stayed up all night catching shorebirds. My family still loves me and we're there. But anyway, um, I don't want to talk about it because you've got the national director for the USA in your church. And this is a rare privilege. People don't appreciate what goes on in their own place, I find. Uh, we work in the Bekaa Valley of Lebanon, where the Syrian Free Army and Hezbollah are currently involved in a vivid, as you would say, conversation. And um, they have, every week, 100,000 eagles fly over their head. And they think that every village has 100,000 eagles flies over their head because it's just where they live. And you're a bit the same. You've got the national director in your church. And I wonder how many of you have backed him against the wall and said, what is all this crazy stuff about Christians and the environment? Because we all know the environment's a Democrat thing. And as for Christianity, well, we're not going to get into <laughs> By the way, if you're a Seahawks supporter that young, you've had a bad uh, start to your life. <laughs> but, um, I... Um, and in a church with a pastor supporting the cowboys, this is going very badly. There's one church hopper right now, I think. He should, he should jump, that little boy. Um, anyway, let's get back to the environment. Uh, because, anyway, yeah, we were in Canada when we saw that game, and they were weeping up there as well. Um, so the thing is that we... No, and probably in Bend, more people are aware than in many parts of your country that we are really living um, an extraordinary time of challenge. Um, Arosha ran a lecture in the Zoological Society of London uh, last year, and that same society published a report just a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you saw the reports, that, that said that we have lost half of the wildlife on Earth in the last 40 years. We're living through an extraordinary time of uh, devastation, really, or ca catastrophic change. Um, and we as Christians believe this is God's handiwork that we're losing. And at this time of change, people are really casting about for explanations, remedies, conclusions. We as Arosha work as Christians within the environmental movement, which is largely a secular movement, and I can tell you that many of my friends are in something close to despair in front of this situation because although the data is essentially being updated and refined at every point, the general trajectory has been known for quite a long time, certainly since Rachel Carson first started her work and, and published The Silent Spring, which was in the 60s. And there's a great deal of soul-searching going on because how can this situation persist how can, even if you just take our own interests to heart, how can we be doing something so incredibly irresponsible when we know that 70% of the pharmaceutical products that we used are essentially derived from, from those species that we're wiping out when we know that it's now refugees from all kinds of situations are environmentally driven more than anything else and so is disease worldwide. How are we walking into this situation 
uh, without really coming to terms with it. Now, Christians in front of these kinds of challenges are, of course, extremely alert to the places and the times when they live. We know that from Jesus, who was constantly drawing on his place and his times to illustrate what he wanted to say and to understand it well. But we also know that we have an extraordinary resource of wisdom, the very mind of God, and that comes from God's word. And so I want to just start our discussion of this time of extraordinary crisis by taking us to two passages. And again, because of Rick Gerhardt's work and others, I know you've had the privilege of thinking a bit about environmental issues from a Christian point of view, but bear with me if these are texts you've been taken to before, because I still think they're quite remarkable. 3,000 years before the words marine crisis were ever heard, this is what the prophet Hosea wrote. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. This follows from the song that we just heard, doesn't it, this morning about the pain and the suffering and the rivers of tears. And many of the countries where we are working, this is an actuality. There are one million Syrian refugees now in Lebanon. And Lebanon doesn't want them because of what happened when the Palestinians became refugees there and how that went. And so they are making no provision for those people in a deliberate act of policy. Bloodshed is following bloodshed. But what does Hosea go on to say? And what do the prophets consistently go on to say? And what is the bit that we always edit out of our textual reading? It's this. Because of this, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea are dying. This is 3,000 years before we had any understanding of the current situation at sea, which incidentally, if it was happening on land, even we would not tolerate it. I was talking recently with a Brazilian guy whose business is getting oils for perfumes. And he told me about the sharks they obtain this, these oils from and the fact that they're fishing deeper and deeper and deeper now to find any of them, and that 99% of the product for them is just tossed over the side of the boat. And he said, I understood before that this was illegal, as is most of what is going on in our seas now. He said, I never understood that there was an element of sin in there. But according to Hosea, the roots of our ecological crisis lie in the broken relationship that we have as people with our living God, the Creator. So for Hosea, this is a spiritual problem. Now what is so extraordinary, to me anyway, 30 years into doing this, is that the consensus of the environmental movement worldwide is that at the very least, the environmental problem is a human problem, and many of them would say it's a spiritual problem. And they use that language because they sense there is something broken in us that is driving 
the acute crisis environmentally. I could give you many, many examples, even from France, where until recently Miranda and I had lived for 14 years, probably the most secular country in Europe, formally secular. You would not be able to do what you're doing today in France. This is a, at least I don't know the, the terms of governance of this school, but Christian meetings cannot happen on, on, in public places in France. There's a legal separation that makes that impossible. It's a secular country, and in the run-up to the elections when uh, President Sarkozy was running for first election, he threatened to be blindsided by a strongly environmental candidate called Nicolas Hulot, who, if you, do, if you know your British wildlife documentaries, he's like the David Attenborough of, of, of France. He's a very mediatic person. I'm, I'm sure you have your national equivalents. And um, this man threatened to run for president because he was saying, look, we're overlooking the main issues for France, which are the resource base of our economy. We're not even talking about that. So to fight him off, Sarkozy promised a kind of national debate about the environment called the Grenelle de l'Environnement. And um, quite remarkably, he kept his promise post-election. And they had that debate. It went on for six months. It involved meetings and discussions and fora at all levels. And the conclusion of Hulot, when it was all over, in the, in the national daily Le Figaro was, we missed the one conversation we should have been having because we can't do this in France. And it was essentially the conversation about what is it we're living for? What do we care about? What's driving this in us? And he said it's the basic idea that we can have everything we want and we can do everything we want and nobody challenged that because it's supposed to be a spiritual issue so it's off limits. And this was Nicolas Hulot saying we're not allowed to talk about spiritual stuff so we can't talk about the environment. To frame the environment in political terms is a huge mistake. It is not a political issue in that sense. It is fundamentally an issue about being human. What do we want? What do we care about? What do we think matters? The environmental movement itself, and this is an open secret, is now being torn apart by an argument because nobody can decide why nature matters. And some of the major players, and I won't name them this morning, but just go to their websites, in the last five years have pivoted to a position which says, nature matters because of what it does for us. And that's why. And they've then said, programmatically, so we'll only put money into the things that benefit people. There's total confusion. Meanwhile, a whole group of other people who are calling themselves the intrinsics are saying nature has an intrinsic value. As a leader from a major university uh, ornithological lab said to me, when I go into a redwood forest, I feel something sacred about this. What is going on? And they want to say, well, nature matters. But they can't say why, because if there's no God, it's just this machine rolling onwards blindly through space and there's no way of saying even that people matter more than frogs let alone saying why the whole thing matters there's no basis for environmental values without beliefs and the ruling belief as ken so rightly identified this morning of the societies that we live in in the western world is the more stuff you have the happier you will be and by the way that's not us that's me and I will go and get it, and 
what have squirrels ever done for me, and too bad if they're gone. That's basically it. And of course, the irony is we live in the most anguished, disconnected, dissatisfied, restless society that's ever been known. We're breaking up everything that holds together our world. When you look down a British street, most people you see have no family. We know this because we lived in community for many, many years, and the students who are coming to study with us and live with us, for the most part, had no family. And finding family with Arosha was probably more important than getting their data straight for the PhD on migrating shorebirds, although we did do that too. And we are in this situation because of a set of beliefs that are driving us, and we're not allowed to talk about the set of beliefs. So that is the first tragedy that we've got. But the title I asked that we talk about today, and which Miranda read in that passage is, is there any hope in this situation? Is there any hope for creation? Well, we've got a remarkable situation, uh, actually, which is that God's idea of where hope is situated is now exactly where the environmental movement thinks hope is situated, and you find it in Romans chapter 8. Again, an extraordinarily prophetic passage. He says that the creation is waiting in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. I gather that Ken most unwisely and unbelievably inaccurately for a pastor identified me with Eugene Peterson the other day, and Eugene is a close friend. But I think if Eugene was dealing with this verse in Greek, what he would say is the environment, to use the language of our times, is waiting for the Christians to show up. The creation is waiting in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed because the creation was subjected to frustration not by its choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. I was deeply moved this morning by that dedication, weren't you? Because this is the elite who were standing before you. These are children who have parents who believe in God and who are going to pray and who've committed their lives to Christ. This is the elite of our society. Forget the car in the garage, it's totally unimportant. Now that glorious freedom and liberty that is promised them, even through everything life's going to throw at them, is what is waiting for the whole creation, says Paul. And the problem is that we've reduced this scope of the gospel, this promise, just to our personal part, which is where it starts, which is completely wonderful. I often say at this point, over the years, some people have said, oh, Arosha, they're those guys who want to water down the gospel and say it's all about hugging trees. It isn't. We believe that people get saved. I believe people get saved. I have been saved. I have an American son-in-law whose mother was a drug addict and whose fathers or father were never around. And it was when he became a Christian at 17 that he saved himself, as it were, from the track that the rest of the family followed. And this young man is now a pastor of a church in London. You have sent us your best. And I'm trying to stop him coming back over here. 
with my granddaughters. <laughs> I believe in salvation. I have seen what has happened in this young man's life. And he's the most stable part of our entire family. And we're number 17. He's a phenomenal person who Christ has transformed. I get that. But the Bible wants to say it's not just about uh, the transformation that I personally can know. And I do hope this morning you do know that possibility of transformation. And if you don't, talk to me, talk to anybody afterwards, because this is the most important thing you'll hear. But it never stops there for the prophets, for the scriptures, for Jesus. It always goes on to the transformation of the community. And that's what we saw this morning with those families and with the church saying, we commit, we will pray for you guys, we'll be there. I noticed it happening even in the de dedication line when one of them was going off piste and the other mother stepped in to kind of cheer up the baby. It wasn't just the mother, it was the mother's friend alongside. Already it was happening. But the Bible also says that the gospel is there to transform our relationship to place. Now, there's something also remarkably conferred, convergent in the way that the environmental movement is seeing things and that we are. Did you notice that Hosea says the issue for creation is people? Now, the environmental movement, which started as this movement about habitats and species, has now said, okay, it's about people. The uh, Director General of the United Nations Environment Program, Achim Steiner, said to Miranda and I over dinner, of course, 90% plus of environmental work is with people, but I'm not allowed to say that, he said. And then he said, but what changes people? There are scientific reasons for that too. When we started Arosha 30 years ago, ecology was essentially understood as being from the ground upwards. You studied the rocks, that gave you the soil type, that went to the plants, then the insects and so on upwards. And we called it Arosha, the rock, to kind of represent that direction of ecological study, but also, of course, to give a pointer to the rock who is Christ. It's flipped over 30 years, and ecology is now understood by what is known as trophic cascades. I won't um, get into that totally, but if you want to see, there's some great uh, five-minute YouTube clips which show what trophic cascades mean. I'll give you an example from your own country. Many of you will know this, Yellowstone. Yellowstone was degrading, uh, the soil was being lost, the vegetation was going out, and they brought back the wolves. And when they brought back the wolves, that excluded the deer from a lot of the areas and the vegetation started to recover. As the vegetation recovered, so the plants came back and the insects came back and the park came back to life in a remarkably uh, rapid space of time. That was a trophic cascade because it was from the top, the top down. You put the top predator back and the whole ecosystem starts to live. So how do you know a predator? If you're a birder like me, yesterday I was banding hawks near Mount Hood with, uh, with Rick, you know a predator because it has no worries about anything eating it, so its eyes are in the front of its head. It's just focused on food. And when we saw those red-tailed hawks coming in at 80 miles an hour on the pigeon, they are focused. From two miles out, they're focused. And they don't have eyes like a rabbit or anything else or a pigeon looking behind them to see what's chasing me because nothing does. So where are your eyes? Right in the front of your head. When you sit in church, if somebody's picking their nose behind you, you have no idea. <laughs> in other words, 
the top predator in all of this, more than the wolves, is us. It is us that remain the decisive factor for the environment. And so the question, is there any hope for creation, is actually a question, is there any hope for us? And everybody knows that. And that is why the, environment movement, the environmental movement is largely in crisis, genuine crisis, because they don't think there's any hope for us. They think we're a lost cause. And they think they're a lost cause because if you extrapolate the history of human relationship to the environment, it is essentially a relationship that is What's in this for me? I will go out and get it. And to our shame, there are theologies that are profoundly unbiblical, which will, you'll hear, which will support that. God's given it to us. It's his sign of blessing. Let me get rich. Let's go and get it. Pros prosperity teaching is throughout the poor world. It's just tragic. I hear it everywhere, in Ghana, in Brazil, Everywhere we go, we hear this. And it's a perversion of scripture because Psalm 24 in verse one says to us, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We live our relationship to creation in reference to our relationship to the Lord. That's what frames our relationship. And if our relationship with God is broken, we will break the creation. We will make a desert of it. We are making a desert of it. Where does the hope lie? It lies in our Glorious freedom that comes from realizing it's God's world, we live in it like Christians. So here's the big irony and the challenge that I want to put before you this morning. This all sounds beautiful, doesn't it? The convergence between the environmental movement's analysis and the church's analysis. It sounds lovely, doesn't it? We believe in salvation. We know it's salvation. We see salvation every day. We see people transformed. I've been a pastor now for 40 years, an Anglican one, I admit, but even we see people getting changed. <laughs> and yet, we don't see, we really don't see that that is carried over into our relationship with the wider creation. We do see a bit, quite a lot actually, and I know Ken's been involved in this justice movement here. We do see this change in human communities. I could give you some extraordinary examples of that. But hardly at all have we seen it changing place, changing our relationship to creation. We have essentially been raiding scripture for what's in it for me and my life because we belong to the genetically modified Western church. You genetically modify something by introducing DNA that doesn't belong and changing it. And the DNA of our societies, which is consumerist and individualist, has got so patched into the gospel that what we care about is me and my life. But that is not authentic biblical Christianity. Authentic biblical Christianity has been always about all of it. The story starts with creation and finishes with the new creation. It doesn't start in Genesis chapter three with what went wrong with me and end a little bit short of the end of the Bible with what God is gonna do for me. It's the whole story. The most profound form of environmental campaigning across the world is teaching the Bible. I'll give you one example. 
from Nigeria, which is the most recent country where uh, Arosha has now taken wonderful root. Um, there are essentially, India lost 98% of its vultures in a decade, just recently. And across West Africa now, vultures are essentially becoming a thing of the past. Well, you may think they're ugly, but they are extremely extraordinary beings. And they are just disappearing like there's no tomorrow. Why? Because in the juju markets, in the magic markets of Nigeria, you can buy a vulture head now uh, for $800. Now, $800 in Nigeria is a lot of money. So I was asked by one of our supporters, not a Christian of any sort, he just thinks I'm religious. So he's, he had seen how in, in uh, Indonesia they'd organized a fatwa for nature. A fatwa is a, a religious ruling that comes from Muslim leaders. And he thought, well, Peter's religious, Arosha's religious, they should just go and talk to the Muslims of Nigeria and organize a religious ruling that says, as to those vultures, stop killing them. Easy. Well, this man gives us hundreds of thousands of dollars to help protect the Atewa forest of, uh, of uh, Ghana. And so when people like that want you to do something, you at least look into it, and we did. Turns out, of course, Nigerian Islam is a much less um, moderate thing than Indonesian Islam. There's no way they're going to listen to a Christian asking for a fatwa. But what it also turns out is that our director of conservation science, who happens to be a Zambian with a PhD from Cambridge, is a minister in Nigeria's biggest Pentecostal church, which is, um, their headquarters is about uh, two kilometers by one kilometer, and even so, they can only have one state's worth of the 12 states of Christians worshiping there at a time, because they can only get a million in. So it's a consequent, it's a, it's a, it's a church of some consequence, with a huge footprint on what happens in Nigeria. And we now have leaders coming forward. We have an invitation from them, and we have leaders coming forward who are saying, we understand there's something desperately wrong in the way we're treating the world around us because we're seeing this devastation, which is always visited on the poor first. Can you come and teach us about how to restore our relationship with creation? Just imagine what this could do. If you map biodiversity in the world, it's 2% of the planet's surface. Who mostly lives there? Because it's the global south. Christians do. Now, here's what I'm getting to. The environmental movement says it's a human problem. We Christians really believe that to be human is to care for God's creation, that the church is the prime agent of healing. And yet, although our theology is now largely sorted, I would say, over the last 30 years. The, what we believe, what we teach, is more or less there. There is basically very, very little in practical terms to show for it, yet. There are some extraordinary things. The Bekar Valley actually looks different because Arosha has been there nearly 20 years. The Alvor estuary, where we were living in Portugal, is part of less than 1% of the Portuguese southern coastline that is not under concrete, and that is because a Christian organization was there. The Minette Country Park in the most polluted and crowded borough of London is now a fabulous 80-acre place for the local community, hopping in species and insects because Christians were there. The place is beginning to look different. But I actually don't know many places in the USA where that is the case, because you've had a number of problems with this issue. You've thought it's political, you don't like science a lot because of the whole evolution argument, and more than that, money, if I may say so, is deeply into all of our societies in the West, but nowhere greater than in yours.
So the conversation is all about money. And yet, there are Christians everywhere in this country. So I want to issue three missionary calls, if I may, in all humility. The first one is to everybody here. This is not something for those who like tree frogs. The environmental movement made a huge movement at the beginning, and they've acknowledged it in many research papers, by saying to business guys, finance guys, farmers, we are the green guys, they said. We're the holier-than-thou, Muslim, you know, muesli-eating, uh, sandal-wearing green guys, and we will sort the environment out for you, and you're the bad guys, because you're wrecking it. And it turned into this horrible argument. It was actually the opposite. Anybody who deals with the material world as they make money in business, as they farm, as they turn on a tap, as they breathe air, is an environmentalist. And the only question is, do we do it like Christians or do we do it like pagans? We don't have a choice. We are environmentalists. We, you know, the air you're breathing out now, the trees outside, will be sorting in 10 minutes' time. We have an automatic relationship. The only question is, will we live it like Christians or will we live it like pagans? So, essentially, whoever you are, whatever you do, if you're a Christian, you need to ask yourself, how is every relationship I've got with those who work for me, with God himself, and with the creation, changed, transformed in Christ? How am I in creation as a blessing rather than somebody who's just wrecking it? That's the first thing. It's for each one of us. Then I want to ask, do we understand that as well as being called to each other, according to scripture, we're called to place, we're called to this place. It says in Acts 17, God determined the exact times and places where people should live so that they could reach out for him and find him. What does it mean to be a Christian in Bend? And how will Bend start to look different because Christians are here? So that the creator is pleased with his handiwork rather than grieving over it, rather than uh, as uh, Romans um, 8 says, the creation is groaning. It's groaning because of the people. That's what the text says. So instead of being people who make creation groan, how can we be people who make creation thrive? I think it's a very practical challenge to every church in Bend. Because if we believe what we've been saying this morning, that the hope for creation lies in the redeemed people of God, then it's about time that we started to work out what that means. And it's a difficult challenge, and I have no... Incidentally, before the questions, I have no idea where you start because I'm not from here, as you probably noticed. And finally, I just think that we have to understand the spiritual dimensions of this. If creation is God's handiwork, made for his glory, made to sing his praises, as scripture tells us, then its destruction can only be met by prayer and not simply by activism. Activism wears you out. Why do we do what we do in Arosha? Because this is our right worship. We do it as an act of worship to the living God, and we have to leave the consequences to him. That's how I cope with the grief of all the many battles we've lost. That's how I cope with this current situation of acute environmental distress and realization that my grandchildren will probably only see a fraction of the species that I now know uh, as I'm out and about. I've even seen it in the 20 years I've been coming here. The difference, the loss, 
During that period, half of the wildlife in this part of the world has gone since my first visit with John Stott now. And yet, because our timescales in our society are by the nanosecond, our political cycles, our economic cycles, it's all done by the quarter at the most, we just, we're just not talking about this. But the biblical understanding of time is quite different. So may the mind of Christ our Savior dwell in us from day to day. And may the consequences be known in his creation to his glory. Amen.